This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. And today I got a chance to talk to Carol Travis. Right. Roy and Victor had things to do with the strike. Um, but my father was the designated official director and was really um, the leader. And uh, Victor would even say that to me. Victor told me a story about my father when I was in Flint at the 50th anniversary of uh, the strike where there was a big parade and, um, or the year of the strike, it wasn't in the winter. And uh, it was the first time I met uh, Victor. And um, so he was, he and Sophie um, took me under their wing. I was, uh, I was president of my local already, um, the 719, um, locomotive general motors local already but they took me under their wing they they and um i think and victor what victor said to me is your father had a very unusual style of of speaking and i said really you know i never noticed and he said no i mean to crowds he said um there were some very important meetings where in Pegley Hall, which was the hall in Flint where the UAW met. Um, he would sit at the edge of the stage in a chair and talk to these big crowds as if he was in the living room with each one of them individually. Really? And one of the more famous meetings is he laid out the, the, the problem that they were having. The, it was near the end of the strike and um, it had been going on for a month and uh, the, the Black Legion was doing a lot of work and there was a lot of work. The Black Legion, and, that would be the equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan or the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. And um, so they were doing a lot of work against the strikers and so, and it was a long time. And so people had been without paychecks a long time. And even though there was a lot of various organizing and food distribution and clothes and all kinds of things like that. And also a drugstore chain, Herlex, which I don't know if it's still there, it was there in the 60s, um, gave prescriptions on, on uh, you know, would fill the prescriptions and you would sign and later they would collect, you know. Um, but anyway, so um, Victor said he would sit at the, at the edge of the thing and, and indicate the problems and where we were. And he said, somehow your father had the ability um, to engender a sense of people who lived in little huts under the, um, in the shadow of this gigantic behemoth, which was legendary, you know, what's good for General Motors is good for the USA sort of thing. And, convince them that together that they had the power to confront and he said that i don't know how he did it but he he did that and um you know so that was one of the stories that victor that's, told me that's really high praise because victor ruther was famous for his oratorical abilities well he was saying that what he what victor does was you know the big get out there and he said your father 
did something else, which was a different and not traditional labor rousing speech, but one that appealed to people's intelligence and so forth. I mean, this was a, I think he was speaking, he must have been speaking about particularly, the, there was a, a meeting which led to the takeover on, uh, I think it was February 1st. I haven't looked at all of this lately, um, except you've inspired me to start looking at it. Um, <laughs> but, um, and Tony, you know, I went to the things of Tony um, Gilpin. But um, uh, this was the meeting where he said to people, um, among many other things, um, we're at a critical moment and we've got, we've got um, stool pigeons here. And we've got stool pigeons operating here and we have to do some things and we need to have your authority. We, will you give a small committee of people authority to act on your behalf? And, um, you know, he did some things. And in that meeting also, they exposed a, f a few spies, a few stool pigeons, because um, uh, Charlie Johnson, who was, uh, worked for uh, La Follette, um, Charlie Johnson was in the party and, um, and he was a staff of Senator La Follette's and La Follette was the head of a, of a Senate Labor Committee and he had sent Charlie uh, uh, in there. And Charlie was, La Follette was a Senator from the Progressive Wisconsin. Farmer Labor Party, right? I don't know if he was from Farmer Labor or what, but he was from, he was a Senator, United States Senator from uh, Wisconsin. Right, but Farmer Labor supported him. And, uh, yeah. and, and, this other guy, Charlie, was in Communist Party, but he was yes, but but he he worked for La Follette. I don't think you know he was did those guys didn't walk around saying I'm a commie. They 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 didn't talk about that because right. it was not they were doing their work. They were doing their work, and uh, and uh, there were people from the Socialist Party, the Communist Party. There there were all involved in these and, things. Uh, Long time ago. Anyway, so at that time there were there were several progressive organizations helping the labor movement. Yeah, all of all of whom got kicked out later on. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, and my my prejudice here is, and this isn't because um, I grew up as an active CP person. I did not. Um, my mother was a New Deal Democrat. So, you know, there was this whatever, and they divorced. So, but in studying it, it, it the Communist Party did it, and the Communist Party was huge, um, relatively speaking, right. um, uh, in those days. Then and so, point, I want to be, be very, very clear on this for people that are listening, is that the Flint sit-down strike, which was the turning point, Right. American labor history yeah. was led by a man named Robert Travis. Yes. A man whose fame is hardly known at all. The right. only reason you know the name is not because anybody ever explains how important it was, but only because he tur keeps turning up. 
He's like Carl Brandon in the Socialist Party. Nobody knows exactly who he is or what he did, but his name just keeps turning up. Things happened, and he was there. Right. He said he also he organized local unions for the United Auto Workers after yeah. Flint. Yes, he did. And and although a lot of the ones that he organized that some were UAW locals and some were farm equipment locals and uh, FE uh, was like UE. UE is the only one survived. I think there might have been another E, but um, you know, and UE was United Electrical Workers and uh, uh, FE was farm equipment workers. FE was farm equipment. And they had. Uh, 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 John Caterpillar, Deer, Caterpillar. Right, right, exactly. Both of those are part of the auto workers union now, and yes. nobody knows why. How did that happen? Well, um, they merged, and actually, um, again, I haven't been looking at this stuff lately, so I can't give you the dates, but um, there was an argument about whether or not they should merge, and actually, my father was in favor of merger when it happened. Um, my father was uh, not, didn't have a sliver, sliver of sectarianism in him. I, I should correct that. Later, he became, um, he began to really um, be angry with Walter. This is um, in his later life. Yeah, and now, Walter, 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 Walter wrote him out of history. And he signed Walter and Victor's first cards, first union cards, when they showed up, he signed at, a, up. At, a, at a convention in Muncie. They had just come back from the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. um, and uh, they showed up, and my father signed their first cards. So and, Bob um, Travis recruited <coughs> Victor and Walter Ruther to the Auto Workers Union. Well, I think probably the movement recruited them, but he's... He had a position in the in the organizing group that had him sign their their sign union the cards. Okay. So, and my father was the first person who led a strike that won against General Motors. Uh, it was uh, in Toledo, oh, in before Toledo. Flint, and that's one of the reasons he was chosen. Another reason was he was he was very. Um, He's very charming. He's really a nice man. You know, he had a great laugh, a great smile. Um, he was warm-hearted. Uh, uh, Herlick, the head of the, the uh, drugstore chain, told me when I was about 13 a story about my father. He said, during the strike, your father came into the drugstore and there was a man shivering because it was snowing and freezing who was picking up a prescription for his wife and your father said don't you have a coat and the guy said no i i don't have a coat and your father gave him his coat you know so that that was the kind of person he was so he was um so there was that reason i was on some jag there and i lost my train of thought but oh well, that's very good what a story oh there's a lot of stories like that. I mean, you've he got, you've got to put a wonderful, together. a wonderful laugh. He you've had a wonderful, put this oh, I know what. I, another sidebar is uh, there's a book called "The Red Diaper Babies," and I, I'm not in it. Um, 
but uh, one woman. Oh, you should explain what red diaper babies are. Okay, that means um, kids who were born to communist families, because in those days, communists were called reds. And um, so uh, children of, of communists were called red diaper babies. So there's a book called Red Diaper Babies, and it's a collection of stories. And one of the stories is from a woman uh, whose name I don't recall, of course, and she's now dead, apparently. But um, it's about Detroit. And, and my, I always lived in Chicago. I, I visited my father um, in uh, Flint and Detroit and here and there, all in Michigan, because he lived in Michigan for many years. And um, when I was alive and he and my mother were divorced and then he moved to California. But um, in this book, it says, being the child of communists in the 50s was really a uh, unpleasant experience because of McCarthy and so on. So everyone was always frightened and down and miserable, except for Bob Travis who used to, on Sundays, come and round up a lot of kids and take us to the park. And he always had a smile and a laugh and he didn't care. And he was, you know, so that's the kind of person he was. He was just, he was uh, immediately likable, is what I would say. Why is it, in your opinion, that everybody doesn't know about Bob Travis and doesn't celebrate the life of this man that made such a gigantic contribution to American labor history? Well, I think that, um, I was thinking the other day um, in general about um, the United States because of what's going on and the divisions and the, and the, the white working class, you know, um, sectors of it really being drawn to Trump uh, for reasons which I have some understanding of. I think because uh, we're a country of immigrants and from different countries and different cultures and so on. In a lot of ways, we, we, you know, we never did melt as a melting pot, or we did to some degree, but to some degree we didn't. And also, the people who probably immigrated were probably not, were a certain kind of entrepreneurial, you know, adventurous person who um, could take a risk and go, you know, so they were individualists in a lot of ways. So it's a, it's a country of strong individuals. And so class consciousness, when it was really hammered um, quite consciously by uh, the powers that be um, to, um, you know, for many years, nobody said working class. I mean, everybody said middle. They've only just started saying it now. Just started saying it again. It was like it was a, it was a band. Uh, I think that people who are younger than I am, and I know you're younger than I am, but people who are younger than at least I am, uh, knew that at some point it was, it was um, not to be said. And then I think... Uh, generations after it, it never occurred to them. They never heard it. So it wasn't a banned word, but it was an absent concept. And, and, so, so, and so our labor heroes were part of that vacuum that just got sucked in. Well, there's that. And, and ones that were particularly communists mm -hmm. were, were carefully 
written out of history. Well, a lot of them were communists, weren't they? A lot were communists. I mean, Emil Macy, who was the first secretary treasurer, I don't think he was a member of a party, but he was very friendly to my father. And he sent a movie, um, which got lost somewhere along the way, of um, some of the footage of um, the strike and I think probably the Battle of Bull Run and some, some um, as a gift, you know. So, and, and actually at one of the conventions, I think it was the 74 convention, um, they set up a special um, pension for my father. Really? Yeah, uh, it was, I th it wasn't, I can't remember who was the president then. Before um, what Woodcock? It was Woodcock. It was Leonard. It was Leonard, and <clears throat> but um, and Dave Miller was the head of the retirees thing at that point, and he and Woodcock and they introduced my father to the convention. Really, my father made a speech at the convention, and I regret whenever I think of it my role in that because he wrote a speech that. Um, was uh, the names of all the people who were not were not remembered? You know, it was Joe Ditzel, and um, oh, I can't remember the other guy's name uh, from um, anyway, from Toledo. So and and Mortimer, Wyndham Mortimer, and you know, just nobody, numbers. Nobody knows who Wyndham Mortimer was. Right. Nobody knows who. That's and his story. Not and he is a wonder, he was my father's mentor. My, my father loved Mort and um, learned a lot from Mort and always gave Mort credit for teaching him many things. And um, uh, Mortimer was quite a bit older than my father. And, um, and so his speech was gonna be a list of all of these names. And I said to him, Nobody's going to know who these people are. When do you know? You, it, you're wasting your time listing their names. Why don't you say something about politics or that? So I convinced him not to do that. Oh. Terrible. <laughs> Just horrible. You know, years later, I looked back on that. I, I was, somebody gave me a book. You know, they have the, the, the transcript of all the, the uh, convention stuff. And I was in Detroit, well, as a president of the local, then I was part of the GM council, blah, blah, blah. So I got to go here and there and do things. And somebody was showing me a, a, the transcript, the book of the transcript of that convention. And um, I read his speech and I was just like, oh, how terrible was I? <laughs> it was terrible. I love to Because he that. wanted to name all those wonderful people, all those, Bud Simons, uh, Dorothy Krause, Henry Krause, but other people too. There were, Henry I, I met, uh, pardon? Henry Cross wrote a couple of books about the- Yes, uh, Henry did. And, and Dorothy was part of the Women's Brigade. Right. And- uh, <clears throat> At Flint. At Flint, uh, which was very important. And in fact, but you know, if you write history, then you're remembered. Like um, Janora Johnson uh, wrote, and so she becomes, Howard Zinn's understanding of what happened at Flint because she wrote a book about herself and her husband, Kermit. Um, and, you know, so 
if you want to be remembered, you got to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Unless whatever. Unless the bourgeois thing. historians, uh, you know, another thing hear your name. Another thing that people don't know about Flint is, is that it wasn't just a sit-in. It wasn't the first sit-in. It was probably the most important one. Right. But, but that there were other strategies and tactics employed of a, of a military level yes. that, that, uh, that caused the victory yes. when really they were up against everything. They were up against the whole yes. society, the Black yes. Legions, the governor. Except for the governor. Except for the governor. Yeah, but governor he, had, Murphy. he had to come around. He, right. He, 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 didn't, he had just been elected, and he actually didn't take office until after the strike was, was uh, underway. But, but he was under he, pressure to call out the troops. Right. And, and then he did. He didn't. No, he did, but he called them out to protect the strikers. Oh, I see. And uh, to, to not have any mayhem. So he called them out in a way that protected the strikers from the Pinkerton. I see. The Pinkerton so, Detective Agency is a noted scab-running, uh, strike-breaking organization. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and they had control of the local before Mort got there. Uh, it was a very small local. Even there, there were 47,000 um, uh, General Motors workers in Flint. In fact, when my father first showed up at Flint, you know, they said, we, we, we want to send you to Flint and take over from Mort. And he had... You know, he was, he was the president of Local um, 4 uh, in Toledo, which was one of the first UAW locals, 9234, you know. And actually, I became very good friends with the then president when I was a president of Local 4. And he took me to Toledo. I, I went to Toledo and he showed me my dad's picture was up there with um, Walter and uh, Owen Bieber at that time. So it was my dad, Walter, and Owen Bieber. Um, but anyway, he drove up to Flint. My dad drove up to Flint and at, at uh, you know, shift changing time, he thought, oh my God, what am I gonna do here? This is this huge population of people. How are we gonna organize it? Well, you know, Mort encouraged him and also Mort, realized when he was up there earlier that um, the local was, was uh, run by stool pigeons. Right. And so that people who joined the union were fired. And that's why it was a very small, non-functional union. Well, he had to organize in secret, and he had to actually go around the local that was already there. Right. And, and more arranged with Addis, not with Homer Martin, who was, who was um, the president, who was a flake and a weird guy. But anyway, uh, to send the names and the dues directly uh, to Addis so that nobody Addis else saw it. the secretary of the UAW. Yeah, the right. I mean, it was a very small group of guys, you know, and there was tensions among them because there were, there were different ideologies in that small group of right. guys. But in the beginning there, the Ruthers were not um, big shots at all. Walter was not a big shot. It was, um, Walt, it was, it was Linda Mortimer who nominated Walter Ruther to become 
uh, <clears throat> on the executive board. I that, didn't know that's that. That's in his book. Uh-huh. But I, I didn't remember it anyway. But yeah. But at, probably that's in his book because his, I don't remember if Jerry was his daughter or his granddaughter. It might have been his granddaughter. Worked for Region 6. She was a staffer at Region 6 when Mort was dying and took over the book. And so she edited the book in a way that was much more compatible with the UAW so that it didn't have all, all kinds of stuff in it that my father said, such important, you know, information about how things um, work, really. What and happened to your father's papers? Did he have some? Do you have He had some. Oh, it's terrible. That's another terrible story. So he had, he got um, um, a Freedom of Information Act, uh, two or three enormous, you know, cartons filled with papers. Well, this is and a, this is FBI stuff or secret yeah. intelligence stuff. Yeah, stuff. and he got it in the 1960s. Right. He didn't get it until the 1960s, for whenever Freedom of Information Act came out. And um, and so uh, and that had the bo that box had also the uh, the movie from. Um, uh, or Emil Macy that had been a present. And so um, in the, he gave them to me. At some point, I got them. And then I was moving a lot. And I knew a guy who was a kind of a librarian and a lefty. And um, I asked him if he would keep those boxes um, for me for a few years. And he said, absolutely. And then he got a divorce. And his oh. wife stole the boxes and, and said they were hers. And I've not been able to find her. So those papers are lost. So I filed a Freedom of Information Act thing. And I got, in fact, I could show it to you, but I, it's, anyway. I got this much paper, like a ream of paper. Now, three quarters of it were single space line that says page such and such redacted page such and such redacted page such and redacted 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 you know so a tremendous amount of papers redacted so i called up the woman who was in charge of the file and she said to me she was a young black woman this was at the beginning of Barack's term and so i thought you know i'll get i'll get this okay right and she said to me, she said two things to me, and I just, one of the things she said to me, your father knew everybody, uh, and everybody knew your father. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, really? Well, I don't know anything about that, you know. <laughs> I'm trying to find out. And then she said, well, I just have the rules. I have to go by the rules. And I said, well, he got, you know, quite a lot of paper previously and she said I just have to go by the rules and uh, I didn't have the um, as they say in Chinese medicine the chi at the time to go after it and and don't have it anymore either so um, his papers you know they're floating around somewhere somebody's got them 
uh, or else they've you know gotten mildewed and thrown into a garbage bin or something. But maybe not. Maybe a historian has them. Uh, you know, historians hoard stuff. Yes, that's true. That's true. They but stuff away that should be properly everybody should know about it right they keep stuff because they're they're going to write a book themselves right. they intend to. i would i'm trying to my my project that i have going sort of we just moved from california to north carolina which was an enormous lift and um but thank god we did our good friends who are there now in a hundred and seven degree heat and smoke i have bad lungs so i want i said i we've got to get out of here the drought is going to be persistent the fires are awful they're going to get worse and um you know i did and we so we moved here in march and so i'm we're still unpacking and and so on but my project is to do a wikipedia page on him at least, at least that. At least, but people I mean that, that would be that would be that would be something that would so that if people if he was referenced, people could look him up and see some things. And um, my ex-husband and I, when my dad died, we did a bunch of stuff and we put out a memorial booklet, which lists like forty-seven locals that he organized. You Your know, father organized forty-seven locals. Yeah. During the CIO days. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And, yeah. and this, does, this doesn't include whatever he did with John O. Lewis. I um, suppose he was red baited out during the 50s or 60s. Well, yeah. I mean, he, at some point um, in the 50s, in the 50s, um, uh, when people were going underground and the Smith Act happened and people were going to trial for being communists, he was he he couldn't get work. He couldn't get work in the '40s actually because uh, even as a machinist, he was a machinist, and he would even in a small machine shop he'd get a job, and then the FBI would show up and he would lose his job. So it was it was a struggle, and I think that's true, you know, in the movie industry and then where they where people were red baited out of work. Um, yeah. And I used to I used to go around saying my father's a communist. You know, I was like ten or something, and my mother would say, "Don't say that." You know, shh, shh. and I would be like, "Why? He is a communist." You know, why? Why, mom? Am I supposed to lie? You know, I'd be. <laughs> but, it's, it's so tragic that one of the greatest of the heroes of the period, nineteen thirty-five to nineteen forty-seven had to had to uh, uh, experience uh, a, 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 that kind of a life yeah. afterwards instead of the plaudits that he deserved for his magnificent contribution. Oh, it's so, it just warms my heart, Gene, um, for you to say those things because he, he, he was loved by a lot of people who knew him directly. And then he was shunted aside and had no role. And it was very difficult uh, to be, and I've experienced it myself, not the same way, where in Chicago, I ran a local that was 10,000 people and did stuff. And then I got to California, nobody knew who I was. And I was accustomed to saying things like, 
well, I think blah, 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 blah. And everybody would say, oh, well, yes, well, that's great. <laughs> and they didn't know me from Adam. And I'd say, well, I think, and the people would say, well, I don't know, who is she anyway? <laughs> so going from a place where you're recognized, and I was just recognized, he was loved, you know, to being shunted and shut down was tough, but he, he, he had good friends and used to play cards and laughed and would go fishing. And um, his second, his third wife, his, my mother was his second wife, his first wife died. She was a, a sweetheart from Toledo and she had cancer when she was very young. He died 40 years to the day on the day she died, which was uh, struck me once I looked up her stuff. But um, uh, she, the woman, he, the third wife, had some money. So they weren't, at least they weren't um, paupers. I mean, they, he didn't have a lot of money to, to share, it was her money. So he didn't have a lot of money to share with my mother. So my mother was a working mother um, from very shortly after I was born. I but um, We better cut this short. We could do a dozen more and still not have That's talked right. about the importance of Bob Travis in uh, American labor history. And just in general, the fact that so much of American labor history is missing. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat. We'll be back. Thank you.